Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just ridiculously fun, such as Fight Club. Yet again, we are here talking about the thing we're actually not supposed to be talking about, and we're definitely not supposed to be talking about it. I'm going to talk all sorts of things about it. I am back here with my brother. It's fun. He's fun. I think he's fun. I'm having fun with him. Yeah, I'm super excited to be back. I've been enjoying reading and talking about this wonderful piece of literature. Would you say it qualifies as literature or is it more just entertainment? I guess what what, what do you feel like is the line? Uh, I suppose it could be argued that anything that is written and put to page could be counted literature to some respect. I mean, it's kind of like if, if you think about, uh, you know, the term classical music, at what point does it become classical music versus just music? You know, the, in some of the music classes I took in college, they defined classical music as any music that is enduring for multiple generations for basically all time. But at some point, it wasn't classical. It was just music. So I feel like with you know books, same thing. At what point does it transcend from being just a book to being, ooh, this is literature? And I'm like, well, it's words on paper mm-hmm. and people buy it and read it. So to some extent, it's it's literature. Mm-hmm. Definitely literature in that in that it is literary. But this idea, yeah, but this idea of well, I guess we could think what well, what's the longevity of it? Like, is it still in print? Is it still read? Uh, so there's that sort of thing. And I'm thinking of like some of the classic classics like Tale of Two Cities, Treasure Island, you know, Three Musketeers, Dante's Inferno. You have, you have very, very old stories that are um, very old style written from like other cultures, other eras that we still find valuable to read. But I'm, and I'm contrasting that in my head, well, I guess, a little bit with Fight Club, but also with something like, say, the Harry Potter, the Harry Potter books, which wildly popular and super fun. I, w- I would say fairly deep and, and layered. And then I can imagine the Harry Potter books becoming classics simply by virtue of like, they're very famous and people, people really love them. But I, but I guess, I guess, I guess the, the, the ongoing question in my head is like, what makes, what makes a story good beyond just like, Oh, I like world building and this one does world building or I like wordsmithing and this one does wordsmithing. So one of the, my, hobbies i've really been getting into over the last few months is whiskey i very much enjoy whiskey and i uh, joined this private facebook group called the whiskey tribe and rule number one in the whiskey tribe is the best whiskey is the whiskey you like to drink the way you like to drink it that's it completely understanding that un- uh an understanding of flavor and what it does to you is 100 subjective and I would argue that for media, it's there are some objective good and bad things, but there's a whole lot of media, whether it's music, movies, TV, books, that is very subjective to where if you enjoy it, it's good. You know, I mean, you could have 
you know, professional critics break it down and be like, oh, the grammar here is bad. The pacing is bad. And there are some like objective things that you can say, yeah, that maybe that is a bad piece of literature. But at the end of the day, if you enjoy it, it's a good book and it's a good story. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not skilled, but, but good. Right. Yeah. Same with like, uh, yeah, there, there are movies or TV shows that you might watch and at, at some level you understand, wow, this is absolute trash, but I'm thoroughly entertained and I'm really enjoying this, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. So as long as you can like make those distinctions, you know, it's, if you enjoy it, I hear that it is good to uh, some level. But I mean, it, yeah. like we're it, in the context that we're talking about it, where we actually are talking a little bit about, you know, story structure and themes, and maybe there's a little bit more objectivity to is this actually good? And I would definitely say Fight Club is very good. I, I, I would I would agree. There's it, it's good. It's skilled. It's it's enjoyable. There's 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 a distinct skill to how it's how it's written and arranged. Um, you know, we, we could say there's a difference between something being good and something being skilled. And we could say maybe what we mean by good is it's, it's enjoyable in whatever way it is. Um, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, they, they'll talk about how like, uh, every genre hijacks your brain in a, in a particular way and it makes you feel a particular way. And you read, you read according to how you want to feel, which makes sense. I mean, the same thing with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> they think, <laughs> I think the, the other element I'd add though, uh, like thinking about, is it just enjoyable or is it also like formative in a way? Like, well, actually, I have not actually read very much manga, so I shouldn't say. Um, but I, but I have to imagine there there's some books like what's the one? Okay, so I so I read the the book the Cloud Atlas a while back. Also saw the movie. That was fun. There was there was there's a cool skill to that one in that it's uh, for for the reader who doesn't know. The, the way the book is, it's uh, six different stories told in six completely different genres. There's like journal, there's narrative, there's interview, there's like like noir narrative. Uh, and it's, it's really, really skillfully written and, and very enjoyable. Um, but I would say not really formative because it's not really about anything. I mean, there, there's characters and plot, but it's not really about any particular theme. It doesn't really tackle any moral issue or philosophical issue. It doesn't really teach me how to be in any way or or call me out on anything. When, when you're saying formative, you're talking any any sort of work that would actually make you think, rethink or question or change your worldview on a, a particular topic or a theme. Yeah, change my worldview or enrich it or just make me think about it or help me clarify it or something like, I don't know. I mean, when it, when it came back to a lot is like, like the brothers Karamazov, which, you know, I've only, I've only read once, but you know, that that's one where like, they really bring this issue of like, what you know, the problem of evil, like they bring that like way out into the open or they, they bring like these family conflicts like way out in the open. And like, you have to think about like, well, well, what would I do in this situation? Uh, you know, do I want to be more like Ivan or more like Alyosha? in having cynicism or having hope. Or we could say, you know, like here, here's the Harry Potter books. They're like, what does it mean to be a hero versus me being a villain? And like, really, what is the difference? And, you know, are you, I guess it's like, like kind of like Harry Potter, kind of like star Wars, kind of like a lot of heroes journeys, but like, you know, are you going to succumb to the darkness within or transcend it and still be compassionate? Like, you know, there's, there's something about that, that like evokes self-reflection, Mm-hmm. Uh, and can be really good or or something and and even something like i'd say you know you know fight club 
uh, I'd, I'd be maybe like selective about what I want to be formative about this one, but <laughs> yeah, we, we've definitely of, <laughs> talked about that a bit about you need to be careful with fight club and what you choose to copy out of it. For sure. <laughs> yeah, very much so. But, but there's kind of a way like this one, this one makes me think, it makes me think about my society. It makes me think about materialism and it makes me think about like, like, am I taking myself too seriously? And it, it kind of makes me, I know that, I mean, I, and what I feel like we might be able to pull out of tonight's chapters is it's kind of a way like I, I really can't take myself too seriously or I have to be really um, like my my public farce kind of gets torn down somewhat by this one, which I don't know could be a really useful thing. So 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 in that sense, I'd say there if there if there's a, a threshold of adding worth or challenging viewpoints or, or stimulating thought and reflection not all books really do that. Um, I think Fight Club is one that can do that, and there are others that do that. Yeah, that, that sounds about right to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, if so, now, now someday Vern Underwood also agrees with me, then that would be I would, I would feel very flattered. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> I don't know. He never really seemed that agreeable with very many people ever for anything. <laughs> I think actually, so, I mean, so speaking, so for, for the listeners, so Professor Underwood, he, we, he was a English literature professor at a community college a lot of years ago. We won't disclose how many, um, uh, it was, I mean, very, I mean, very much like nerding out over like, here's this theme and this word and, you know, this pattern or whatever. And it was, and it was really interesting when we read through like the, the the Genesis account of creation, like in, in class and like, and and for me having grown up with that story, I was just like, Oh yeah, it's creation, whatever. But watching like a whole class of like, you know, mixed faith and a lot of atheists, like tear down the story and, and just like analyze it like as literature, I'd never seen that before. And I was like, Oh wow. I didn't know it could be complicated that much. I actually, I, I sometimes hear professor Underwood's voice in my head as I'm like writing my story. Cause I there's a way that I, I feel like I'm kind of writing it someday for someday, like a literature class, I like, tear it down and be like, no, here's where he makes this reference to this. And here's where <laughs> he makes a reference to the killers. <laughs> so someday if a literature class ever uh, reads my book, I will feel so very flattered. Yes, of course. Cause you know, that's the, the best mark that you've arrived is when someone just totally picks apart what you've made. Yes. Yeah. When they, when they find it worthy of writing angry, angry comments, I, I, I suppose I could say, I have arrived. <laughs> Bring on the trolls. So anyway, Fight Club, chapter 11. I wrote some notes. So these are, like we talked about, these are uh, interesting chapters. This is an interesting part of the book. I think that if we're breaking down sections of books, technically we would be in the fun and games section here where... We've introduced the characters, we've introduced the conflicts, we've introduced the themes, we've kind of in, we've definitely introduced the premise, the action is rolling, but it's uh, it's a little too early for climax and even still too early for Dark Knight of the Soul. So this is kind of where we see I mean, in, the, in the case of you know Tyler Durden and Jack, like they're like up to their mischief and there's just like a series of shenanigans. I I, I think I think there's some themes, but I I feel like I'm kind of reaching to try to piece together thematic material here, thematic material here uh, a wee little bit. I know what's your, what's your sense of this section? I was kind of feeling the same with um, this whole chunk of chapters is it's, uh, it, it strikes me as being 
exposition and kind of like setting the scene for what's coming up next um and without like because in the the previous chapters you know we're talking about just the you know the narrator's uh mental state with you know going to all the different support groups and then his uh, mental split as when he meets tyler and his relations with marla and then Ed talked you know about themes of violence and fatherhood and family and the next few chapters of the fight club gets going but this is just well we did this and then we did this and then we did this and it just it it feels like there's not a like deep thematic material going on here but i think there is is some i kind of i was kind of feeling like as these chapters progressed in this whole chunk it almost feels like the the arc of the story from the beginning till now is you have the narrator and he's narrating as he does on a different level as these chapters progress he's becoming more and more of a spectator in his own life it's like you can kind of get the sense that as these shenanigans kind of progress, that Tyler is really, really taking over. And he, it's always about what is Tyler wanting him to do. And then on the opposite end of things, it's okay, well, Tyler is doing this and that's awesome. And it could be worse because Marla is doing this and it could be stuck doing that. But it's all from like this spectator vantage point of like he's not even present in his own life anymore. And it's just like that's like the one kind of interesting, maybe not a thematic thing but just a, a storytelling thing to where it's it's really becoming more about tyler and what he's doing and about marlon what she's doing and the narrator's literally just narrating he's almost like backing out of his own story he's being pulled along more yeah now that you mentioned it i think i see that too he's more the more the passive participant and sometimes even the reluctant participant and just just kind of reflecting on things i, I think we see too the character is getting a little bit more introspective. I mean, he's always, I mean, he's an introspective narrator voice, but, but you kind of see how he's saying less explicit stuff about like external society and more, he's more thinking about like his own life. There's more references to like his, his childhood and his past a little bit. And actually the, the, and there's, there's a point there where like he and Marla actually have some pretty human moments of like not hating each other and not just like having sex, but like actually sharing some feelings back and forth. Um, and, and, you know, she, she gets humanized in some interesting and kind of cool ways here too. I, I will say from just a, a fun storytelling point here in, in chapter 11, just kind of a fun thing that I feel like the author did is, you know, when he leads off with talking about what Tyler did with Marla's mom. And when you first mention that, like you kind of automatically kind of go towards sex because that's been Tyler's whole thing with ladies in this entire book. And then to have that twist, that's, I mean, just as messed up as you would think, but completely different from what you expected, you know, just have taken the donated collagen to make soap. Yeah, I, I just found that it's kind of a fun storytelling point of, you know, getting the reader's expectations for one thing and then completely changing it but still having it be completely twisted and messed up for sure. It's, it's good. It's, it's a sign of good, good writing or, or at least very intentional, very strategic writing. And yes, very, a very good interaction with the, the reader's expectations and the rhythm and the flow. Good twist. So yes, Mr. Palinuk, uh, thumbs up. Yeah. So, okay. So, so chapter 11. So, the, <laughs> so this is the story of how, Marla has a mother who apparently has some body fat that she gets rid of and sends to Marla so that Marla can use it for 
cosmetic surgery purposes. Okay, and then that's getting stashed in the, the Paper Street house, and Tyler's using it to make soap. And Marla doesn't know this until she and Jack discover this sort of by accident. And this is why, for no apparent reason, Tyler sent Marla's mother a 15-pound box of chocolates. <laughs> well, okay. Fatten her up so she can send more fat. <laughs> yeah, which uh, does evoke some some feelings. I, I did find this interesting. So, did you ever see or read Cloud Atlas? Mm-mm. Okay, so there's... Or, or did you ever see Soylent Green? No, I did not. Although I know the twist at the end. Oh, Okay, so you know the twist. Okay, yeah. all right. So, so I'm going to drop spoilers, which if you haven't seen either of these, definitely see Soiling Green. Cloud Atlas was a little forgettable. So with Soiling Green, the, the twist is that they're, they're taking their, their dead elders and processing their remains into the, in the, the Soiling Green protein that is everybody's primary food source. So they're essentially like eating, eating their dead. And... In Cloud Atlas, there's a similar thing where there's there's a a breed of like uh, they're called fabricants and they're like artificially created like humanoid. Then they're all women and they all look the same. And uh, you know these fabricants are told, oh yeah, if when you know when you die, you'll be exalted to this like special special place. But actually, they're just being like like uh, executed and turned into food and fed back to the other fabricants. So. I was actually thinking about this here a little bit because there's kind of this sense of like taking taking the human, processing it, feeding it back to the human. And actually to, to wax very philosophical a little bit, thinking about like here's where worldview comes in. Like uh this is this is kind of an expression of like what what is one's worldview? What uh what what is a person? What is the worth and value of a person? How do we understand like who who a person is? This sort of gesture, like in some of like in some of those other other uh literary moments, um, you know, this seems to be a worldview that says, Oh yeah, we're we're dust, we're cells, we're scum, you know, there's nothing inherently special about us, nothing overly different than like animals. So why not just like recycle ourselves and feed us back to ourselves, whether in the form of food or soap or something? Which would be very which would be very different than like other views that might say, oh yeah, actually there there's a divine spark in everyone, or even like our body, soul, and spirit are the image of God, and like like even our body should be like reverenced in, in a little way. And then I was actually I was contrasting this because I was thinking about that recycling idea, which then also uh, made me think about the Lion King because of course we always think of the Lion King. Oh like, yeah, I don't know why you all are not thinking about the Lion King so much. Circle but... of life, it's real. <laughs> It's real. Yeah, it's very real. But like when when Mufasa talks about the circle of life, though, it's it's a really beautiful thing. And it's there's this really there's a sense of and we're participating in this lively, hope filled. This, this is our community at work, like supporting each other. Like it's not exploitive. Whereas in these other stories there's very much the sense of like, yeah, let's just exploit humans because they're just they're just objects. I will have to just have to comment. Brief segue. Um, mentioned briefly before we started recording here, I went hunting today, got my buck for the season, super excited, but actually going hunting. Thank you. Actually going hunting the whole like circle of life concept becomes very, very real because you go out in the field, you kill your buck and they're in the field so that it becomes lighter and to transport it. You gut it, remove all the entrails, and then you just leave them there in the woods. 
if you go back to that same spot the next day, they're gone. Like the guts don't just sit there. They get consumed by all. And uh, the other day I was up hunting and my mother-in-law, she got her buck and I was hunting the area after they had uh, left for a while. And I saw the pile of entrails. I just saw like a flock of birds descend on it and start picking at it. And I was like, it's, it really brings the whole concept of circle of life, like it to the foreground, like nothing when, when approached respectfully and like in harmony with nature, I know that sounds way more hippie than I actually am, but it is when you, when you take it a respectful approach to nature, like nothing goes to waste, you know, it was like, yes, I killed the deer. I'm going to eat the deer, but at the same time I'm providing sustenance for the birds and whatever large cats or bears come by to get the scraps. And then the nutrients that are in that are going to go back to the ground, help the plants grow. Then the deer are going to eat those plants. I'm going to kill another deer. There we go. So anyway, random segue because we brought yeah. it up. No, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's worth worth thinking about. It's like, I mean, I'm 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 mostly plant based in, in my life, but I feel like if, if I were going to eat meat, then that that would be how I'd want to do it. Because in that very like interactive, reverencing way, like really cherishing like the the source of it. Which so that that's making me making me think. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie Avatar was that there's this one point where where Jake Sully's hunting. And as he's been taught to do, he he kills his beast and or wounds it, and then as he's killing it, he he says a prayer of thanks like to the creature for like you know giving his life or whatever. And there's just this this sense of I'm part of a cycle here, I'm participating in something, and there's a there's a deep reverence for it. And, the, and again, it's it's there's a consumption element, but not an exploitive element. And and again, and I guess so thinking back to to our book here, I guess that's an element that is not really present in how these characters interact with each other there there's not really there's not there's not really a sense of anything being sacred or anyone really being worthy of any respect it's it's very very doggy dog and we have to like tear stuff down yeah which i mean as we've talked before like that's kind of an overarching theme for the for the entire book as a whole is being like just one step out of line of a really good concept because, I mean, when you think about it, like with the whole, uh, you know, sending Marla's mom chocolates to fatten her up to get more fat back from her to make soap. You know, there actually is a practicality to that. You know, if if someone's going to be removing fat from their body because they want to feel better about how they look, might as well use it to make a good workable product. And everyone needs soap. You know, so, I mean, in a sense, sure, that that could be a very practical way of looking at it. But it's the intent behind it. It's the intent that, you know, he uses Marla's identity to basically to create a false pretense to force Marla's mom to want to send her body fat so that they can then use it to make soap, to make a profit. And that's where, like, it takes a sense of, you know, if it's all willing and consensual, it could be a good practical use to, oh, I'm actually just going to be taking what I need for my own profit. I'm going to use you to do it. Yeah, it might be a good idea if he wasn't like lying and stealing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, wouldn't you figure lying and stealing cause problems? Yeah, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> so all you liars and thieves out there, stop it! Okay, chapter 12. My boss stands too close to my desk with his little smile, his lips together and stretched thin, his crotch on my elbow. I look up from writing the cover letter for our recall campaign. These letters always begin the same way, which I'm not going to read because I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
So this is the one where, okay, so other fun thing in some of these chapters, there's some really cool foreshadowing starting to happen for, for what, the, what the twist will be. His insomnia is coming back and he's, you know, several times talking about like, you know, I know this because Tyler knows this. And, and a lot of questions of like, there's a sense like Tyler's doing stuff in the background. Why is he doing this? And uh, like, like when he and Tyler met, there was a sense of like synergy and like, uh, like this relationship is my saving grace. And now there's a sense of like fracturing of uh, like, like you were saying, like as he's becoming kind of pushed out of his own story, there's a sense of like stuff's happening in the background that I'm just kind of like numb to and like some severe compartmentalization dissociation starting to happen. Um, but it, it's, it's all starting to get foreshadowed here. Anyway, this is a chapter where Jack's boss, Joe's boss, uh, discovers the fight club rules printed out and is asking him about it. And then he starts just messing with him and talking about like, you know, kind of threatening, but not threatening to like go in like a shooting rampage in the office. And kind of his theme for the chapter is, you know, Tyler's words coming out of my mouth. I used to be such a nice person. And this is all, so this is also, uh, and the chapter, the chapter ends, he, he goes back to his remaining men's support group that he has, that it was so important to him at the beginning and he hasn't been back for a while, but he goes back and runs into big Bob who apparently now is, is ripped again. And so we learned that, uh, remaining men has disbanded. And the good news big Bob says is there's a new group, but the first rule about this new group is you aren't supposed to talk about it. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, so there's more fight clubs springing up. I got to say the as I was reading the chapter, just a uh, one thing that I wish they had done in the movie that would have been cool because they they did they specify that when he goes back to remaining men, Big Bob is now just like jacked, pure muscle, like in shape and fit. And in the movie, he was just still just like a fat man with bitch tits, <laughs> you know. But it's like he hadn't actually undergone any change. And even by the time, and again, you know, spoiler alert, he dies. He never actually like goes you he in the book he keeps talking about this transformation of these guys in fight club. They go in, these soft, mushy beings, and they come out rock hard because you know they're training, they're fighting, they're getting strong. And I wish they'd actually shown that transformation for Bob in the movie. Cause I feel like that would have uh it would have been just a nice extra little layer of presentation. That, that's a, a little disconnect i found from my movie watching experience and my book reading experience it's like i wish they had made bob buff after he started going to fight club i think it would have been nice that would have been nice that could have been nice yeah which now they mention it there, there is this interesting twist because a lot of times when you see in, in the hero's arc like in the training montage you do see people getting better, getting more fit, more graceful, more coordinated. But here in this story, it's kind of the opposite. You see kind of like the deterioration of, of health. Like the, these guys are, are, I mean, our character anyway, I mean, he's losing teeth. He's got this hole in his cheek. He's got bruises everywhere and he's bleeding all the time. And it's just, uh, it's just kind of crumbling. Well, one way you could look at that, cause I, I know that the term heroes arc for like, yeah, that's the main character and they're, transformative journey throughout the story but i know we've also talked before on separate occasions about the difference between a hero and a protagonist and a villain and an antagonist and that they're not always synonymous so i mean you could really could and almost look at the that hero and then the anti-hero yeah you, you could look at it that with the uh, you know jack the narrator he's not a hero 
by any means. He's just the narrator. He's just the protagonist. And you could even argue that he's not even the protagonist because it's almost more about Tyler than him. So, I don't know, a positive transformation into better health and higher level of skill, you know, that is good for a hero's journey, but he's not really a hero. So can we really call it a hero's journey? I'm kind of thinking, I'll have to think about it, but I'm kind of thinking no. So, yeah, because there's not really a quest. and There's not really a, a specific quest. There's more, there's kind of this vague invitation to just like make mischief. Tyler seems to have a quest. Ty- Tyler is a very purpose-driven intentional character but but the character yeah like, like you were saying earlier he's just kind of getting he's just kind of getting john john drawn into it well and in the case of tyler yeah his story does in its own relative way have more of a positive arc of improvement because he starts off as just kind of this random fake deep beach bum building sculptures on the beach and he does. He gets stronger and more confident. And then he goes from, I mean, they never leave the house, but he had to go from it being basically broke in the house to all of a sudden, and even comments on it in chapter 11, now they have money because they're making money. The soap company is prospering. And then the fight clubs are growing. And you know, they say that you know, they have seven and then like, what, 15, and like 28. So on Tyler's side of things, he is having a, in his own way, a positive transformation for his life because everything that he's striving for is getting better. So Andy has a great discipleship model, apparently. Apparently people love him. (laughs) So, you know, maybe, maybe we should call Tyler the quote unquote hero of the book. And he's the one going through the hero's journey. And the narrator is literally just a narrator, barely even a protagonist. Yeah. But I'd probably say Tyler is more of an anti-hero because he's not, he's going on his own development arc, but it, it, he's not after redemption and he doesn't really, he's not like, like the things he does are not like heroic or like helpful or com, or like compassion driven, kind of. Um, I mean, there's kind kind of the, he, he does seem to like care about people's liberation and everything, but in this very, very harsh way. It, it kind of feels like again, like like with the with the way that like the the author puts this kind of perverse twist on everything. Uh, there's kind of this like twist on like what what is heroism, anti heroism. You know, it's you know, it's not it's not it's not a friendly book uh, or a friendly story, and it's not a story about friendly people. Although there are moments where the characters care about each other a little bit, or want to help each other, or find some some bits of purpose here and there um again it, yeah it's, it's just all with this twist of like we're we're kind of really just like on our own doing our own thing and kind of just using each other all along the way but literary moment so this is a chapter where we could say uh the monster has reached containment because again like we said tyler is doing things out of the narrator's awareness the fight clubs are growing again out of his awareness beyond his control. I think this was a term like coined in relation to like my, like Mark Driscoll uh, of Marcel, but uh, thunder puppies. Uh, where you might say, so you have like any whatever whatever teacher, you know, charismatic figure who will say whatever he says in a particular way, whatever she says. But then there's all of like the followers that will completely exaggerate and turn that into hyperbole and like twist that into things that it was not meant to be. When one should one be could decide to become a charismatic, you know, figurehead of something, uh, beware that uh, not only will you probably be misquoted by some people, but your words will probably be embellished into something completely unrecognizable and possibly violent. <laughs> just 
Fair warning. That's for all you. That Fair sounds like life on the public stage. <laughs> I think so. Chapter 13. When I get to the Regent Hotel, Marla's in the lobby wearing a bathrobe. Marla called me at work and asked, would I skip the gym and the library or the laundry or whatever I had planned after work and come see her instead? Because she's found a lump on her body and she thinks it might be cancer and she can't go to a doctor or anyone else. So she calls the narrator. The narrator. And this is actually... And I think this kind of came through in the movie too a little bit, but this is actually like this really tender moment in a sense between between uh, the characters, between Jack and, Mar- and Marla. And, and Jack, the character, he's very reticent about it because he doesn't like her at all. Uh, he doesn't care about her at all. And yet in the way that he talks about her and talks about who she is and some of what she's been through, there, there, there's kind of a way like, you know, in this, in this way, Marley gets to be more than just a crazy bitch because you see, oh, there, there, there's a person. There's a person who's been wounded. There's a person who has some interests and some habits, and which I, I really appreciated it. I mean, I mean, I mean, I probably wouldn't, you know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't put this book on the top list of uh, top ten most, uh, you know, feminine friendly novels. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely <laughs> uh, doesn't pass the Bechdel test at all. But 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 in this chapter, at least they they're this kind of the. The treatment of women in this chapter is like actually like starting to be a little bit tender. Yeah, this was one of those chapters that I just I personally didn't really get much out of from like a discussion standpoint. Like it was an event, it happened, it was a, a nice interaction. Yeah, you know, it's like it, it was that one, at least up to this point of the book, the one little moment to show that these two people, the narrator and Marla, aren't just totally horrible people all the time. There's just like that glimmer that there's still some good humanity in them still. But outside of that, I just, mm-hmm. I did not get much out of it. It is an interesting contrast compared to the rest of it because most of the rest of the book is not really about connection or about human moments. It's more about tearing down the system and causing mischief and destroying things and uh, rants against capitalist society and everything. I, I kind of pull the sense from from these couple of chapters that you know the character is really lonely. Marla is definitely really lonely. I mean, she wouldn't admit it, but everybody thinks she is. Uh, and you know, Tyler's just off in his own world. But you know, and, and then it makes you wonder, like, so I mean, what what would you do? <laughs> what would you do for a Klondike bar? What would you to what would you do to not be lonely? Especially when there's also the sense of there's no purpose or no real hope for anything. Um, like when the most you can hope for is for like all the corrupt financial structures to get torn down. And like, that's, that's the epitome of your redemption. This idea, like, and what if I have to also face that alone can become really terrifying. And so you do kind of get the sense, I do anyway, that this is a really lonely character and like lonely to the point of being, being stuck there. Cause when, when here's, here's a person who's like actually interested in him and actually wanting to have a connection volatile though it may be there's there's no interest in it like no spoken interest he wouldn't like the 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 narrator at this point would not ever say like i'm interested in marla or i want a connection of any sort and he he would even try to like sabotage it but but then there's other 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 moments where you kind of get the sense of like he's feeling he's feeling the aloneness well yeah because i mean they even made the point towards like the middle and the end of the chapter you know after he's you know 
giving Marla her little amateur exam that he's wanting to like to warm her up and to make her laugh. You know, like even if he's not intentionally or not going into it with the thought of, hey, I want to make this person feel better because I want to make a connection. Like there's just this the natural instinct of you do want to connect. You know, no one wants to be lonely. Um, and even if they absolutely hate each other at this point in the story, that's basically all each other has. So they still try to make some sort of a connection as volatile and toxic as it probably is. Yeah. Which is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a human thing. Like we're, we're built for connection and we're, we're built to be like in relationship with people. And so in a, in one sense, and then this is where it can get really, really dicey is like, uh, in to a certain extent, like a, like a bad relationship is better than a relationship kind of, uh, or, or that can be, that can be the, the, the way we function. Like, uh, I think a lot of people would rather have a, a dysfunctional or kind of, kind of, or an abusive relationship than no relationship at all. Um, because to be alone can be really, really overwhelming and terrifying. But yeah, they, yeah, there's some tender moments where they are just kind of sharing some stories back and forth about really vulnerable moments you know, he says this thing about wanting to make her laugh, to warm her up, to to make her forgive me for the collagen, he says. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a sweet moment. Then we move on. Chapter 14. He says, this is why I love the support group so much. If people thought you were dying, they gave you the full attention. A little bit further down the page, you know, he's talking about, you had their full attention. People listened instead of just waiting for their turn to speak. And when they spoke, they weren't telling you a story. When the two of you talked, you were building something, and afterward, you were both different than before. It's actually super profound thinking about like communication theory. This is something that came up and that comes up in like counselor school and learning how to be like empathic and reflective and everything. When we talk about being fully present with the person and like active listening, active listening is done when you are fully listening and just absorbing, just being curious. Uh, as soon as you start planning your response, you're no longer actively listening and no longer connecting with the person. Uh, and so, and that's something to be, to be careful of. So yeah, so it's like, obviously the counseling setting is not a debate scenario. Like if you're in, if you're on debate team, yes, you need to be, you're not really listening because you're not really there to learn or, or, to, or to be changed. You're there, to, you're there to win. And so then, yes, in that setting, planning ahead but if you actually want to connect with a person first step is to just be present and just be curious uh which is being hinted at here which i appreciate well i almost find this interesting i didn't catch this until this very moment talk about it you know we said in the last chapter you know i was saying i didn't really get that much out of it but then when you start talking about human connection and then the very first line in the following chapter is basically saying yeah that connection we had in the last chapter basically if you want that you have to be dying that's how horrible people are, is if you actually want proper full attention, if you're on your deathbed, then maybe people will listen to you. You know, it's, I don't know, I only just caught that and found that interesting. That's just, I mean, a, a really kind of a, a cynical view, but. Yeah, well, it's it, it's cynical, but it, sadly, I mean, there's there's a reality there too. I mean, and we, when we see this, uh, I mean, we see this a lot in kids sometimes too, like the kids that will like act up and act out I mean, they're not bad kids. Like uh, a lot of times what they're wanting is they're wanting attention. Like they're wanting to know if I push, a real human will push back. Or if I'm distressed, like a real human will be there with me and witness me and, and welcome me. And if I need to connect, 
there will be someone there for me. And if I need some space, I can take that too. Um, but so a lot of the acting out behavior is, you know, classically like a cry for attention. And cause, cause there's this idea of like negative attention is better than no attention at all. So, and then that, I mean, and that in, in the adult context that, that often translates to like, you know, better to be in an abusive relationship than no relationship, but where else have we seen this working with, um, so in my, in my counseling practice, I, I mostly work with men. Uh, and oftentimes when like anger comes up or when like an anger part comes up, um, part of the idea is like people get angry for a variety of reasons. Uh, a notable one is when the anger part comes out in order to make the person heard and oftentimes comes in response to not being heard, not being seen, not being valued. And so then, then develops the belief that, uh, you know, unless I make them angry, they will forget all about me. Or in this case, you know, if I'm not dying, if I'm not in crisis, then I don't warrant attention. Almost like if if you want to be seen, be noticed and get that connection, you have to take drastic measures to make yourself a very unavoidable presence in their life, whether it's, you know, being on your deathbed or being just full of rage all the time. Um, that's the only, they, they're feeling that's the only way they can actually get some sort of connection is to basically make themselves unavoidable in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And this would be maybe if, so, cause on the, on the other end of it would be, uh, I'll get attention by being unforgettable. And this is where you might get the performers or the really dramatic people or the, you know, like the super, the super performance people, uh, you know, they, they get their attention by being popular, by being beautiful, by being smart, by being high achieving, uh, cause, uh, which again, there's, there's a variety of burdensome reasons why people lean that way also. But, it, but I think in there, one is that there's, there's a sense that if I start failing or if I start slacking off on producing things, then I will lose my worth. I will lose my value and people won't care about me. They'll go for whoever can, can meet their expectations and meet their needs. So, so again, on either end, we see a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the dysfunction comes from this fear of being alone or this fear of rejection and you know and we're we're saying that in this you know cultural societal human context of a lot of people who don't connect well and we can't completely blame the parents although that that was a factor at one point but it's you know we're living in this culture now a lot of people don't know how to connect a lot of other people are not interested in connecting i don't know i so another another segue rant because i have lots of rants but so uh, so so my family we we transitioned from one uh, one church community to another a few years ago and then i began the process of like trying to make friends again which which i discovered like st- starting fresh in a community trying to make uh intimate friendships intimate non-erotic friendships with with other men in their 30s is really difficult like now i mean not not completely impossible but uh, but I, but I, I was, I was, I've been running into, I'm kind of a relationship snob because of like counseling and writing and, and everything. Like I, I would venture to say, like, I know how to talk to people and I'm really curious and I know how to ask questions and, uh, and just like invite people in the conversation. And, and finding that, like finding, finding other men, my age who are straight, who can also talk about feelings in, in a deep way it's very special when it happens because there, <laughs> there's not a lot of them. So to my emotionally intelligent uh, male friends, you know who you are. Uh, thank you. I love you very much. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, you're kind of going beyond just finding a, a hobby in common. 
with what you're talking. Yeah, and it is. Yeah. I mean, it's just in general, you know, people don't like to be expressive, at least in, in my experience. And I mean, maybe I'm also just kind of projecting so myself onto everyone around me because I don't like to be that expressive in a lot of ways. I like to keep to myself. I'm very much an introvert. For me, it's like it's not necessarily a problem of making friends. It's that I don't necessarily want to make friends, <laughs> but but by the same token, I still want to have some friends. Yeah. And I would say like, I mean, introverted though, though you might be, uh, you can still have a conversation. Like you, you put thought into things and like you meet the minimum criteria of, you know, someone asks you a question you, and you ask a question back. <laughs> not everybody actually does that. Oh, gosh, That just seems like a common courtesy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I, I I I've tried a lot of times to strike up a conversation with somebody and be like, "So, how was your day?" And they're like, "Fine," <laughs> and, then, and then that's it. I'm like, "Okay, great, have fun with that." Yeah, I mean, the the goal isn't necessarily to have like lots of friends, but to be able to be to be friendly and engaged with you know, like the one or two people that that are in your life, and and yeah, it you might only need one or two people and that would be that that's wonderful and i and i think i'm finding as i get older like i mean i i like having a lot of people in a network for, for like networking purposes but but i am finding that my my circle of closeness is, is definitely shrinking which that i'm fine with but but then i think of like well what if we move and what if we have to like start over and like like what if i what if i'm like in my 40s at some point and in a new community and having to make friends and like you know, like like all of the guys around me, like they, they, they hunt and they build houses and work on cars. And like, I write books and talk about feelings. <laughs> <laughs> There's something classically dreadful about the scenario. I have, I've actually contemplated that as well. Um, the idea of moving to a different town, different state, whatever, and not knowing anyone and having like no connections with anyone. It's a little bit terrifying. You know, and like I say, like I'm a pretty introverted person. I don't like to get out there and put myself out there, but you know, I still like to have some connection. And the idea of having zero at all because like we don't know anyone is like that sounds rough. I mean, we get through it, but it still sounds rough. And again, and again, there's endless ways to distract oneself from those feelings, but that's not a relationship, and that's not like compelling, and that's. You know, those distracting things are not are usually not going to be the things that like, shape you or form you or or nourish you. May maybe work maybe work can if it's like you're working on uh, if your work is passion driven, like you're supporting a cause or something. But but beyond that, like yeah, uh, you can like distract yourself from feeling lonely, and that's what a lot of people do. Uh, or or work to connect with people. So that's why he went to support groups was to pretend to be dying to be uh to be to be noticed and to, to connect uh so there's a thematic element through a couple of these chapters where he'll he'll say the line nothing is static everything is falling apart uh which again would be what is that murphy's second law of everything falls apart unless effort is expended to do otherwise oh that's just uh that, that's physics it's entropy Okay. Okay. Entropy. Okay. Entropy. Uh, okay. Entropy slash and nihilism altogether. Mm-hmm. Perfectly legit. Yes. Everything does break down. Everything dies. There is nothing that is static, but against the context, this is really just like, 
like you say, kind of in a, a nihilistic way that's like, everything's going to burn anyway. So let's just figure out how to burn with it in the way we want. Not trying to like turn this into like a Bible study or like, you know, Christian commentary or whatever, but I'm thinking about like the contrast between this and like, like, like Christian theology, like Christian worldview, which is very much like, like nothing is static, like everything is being redeemed. And, and that's, I mean, that is the, like, like the Christian narrative and like the, the, the work of, the work of Christ on the cross and in our lives is it's, uh, you know, our, our, our souls are being redeemed and, and healed. Our, our bodies are being redeemed and healed. And ultimately like the whole world is saved also. And, and, you know, made, made whole, made better again. And so the, in, in that worldview, the idea of nothing is static is a really beautiful thing. Cause there's this idea that even, even when things are suffering and breaking down, it's being used for good in some way, somehow, some way. I was going to try to make a West Side Story reference and try to sing it, but no. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but but again, absent that narrative or absent that hope, uh, yeah, nothing is static. Everything is breaking down because life is terrible or at least meaningless. So yes, worldview matters. It does. Oh, seriously, here's some fun Tyler quotes from this chapter. He says, Disaster is a natural part of my evolution toward tragedy and dissolution. Can I, I'd like to see that one on a poster with a butterfly. Uh, <laughs> or, and he also says, I am breaking my attachment to physical power and possessions because only through destroying myself can I discover the greater power of my spirit. Which I will say in that one might just be words. It, well, in, in the context of, you know, his uh, phone conversation with the detective about his condo blowing up. It actually fits because, you know, it's again with the thought that, OK, yes, we know because we've read this and seen the movie that, you know, Tyler is the narrator. So it's basically just a narrator's alter ego acknowledging that, yes, I realized I needed a major destructive change in my life. So I blew up my own condo to, quote, break my attachment to physical power and possessions. But again, it's like. I feel like it's just one step short of actually being something good (laughs) because breaking, breaking that attachment to, you know, physical possessions and, you know, your concepts of power, not necessarily a bad thing, but context matters. Context matters and an application and response matter too, because yes, I would agree. Like when, when this character is introduced, he's like, you know, the, the, the Ikea pun and he's in his Ikea castle and yeah, he, his identity is his stuff and his job and his status and his comforts. And yeah, that was very unhealthy for him. So yeah, say, so yeah, the author is very right to call that out as like, that's really unhealthy and meaningless. And, but probably blowing it up might be a bit excessive. Just, just there might be bit. other ways just a little bit to work through that. You could at least give your goods to the poor or something. Right. It's perfectly good stuff. No sense having it go to waste. Uh, one of my one of my favorite ideas uh, comes from uh, Saint John Chrysostom. Is, is he's a like a third or fourth century teacher in the Orthodox Church, uh, and he would say the the safest place to invest your money. And of course, he's speaking like in the, in the spiritual sense. You know, the safest place to invest your money is in the poor, because then you're investing in your soul. Mic drop. From a from a theological standpoint, I can totally get on board with that. From a practical, real-world yeah. standpoint, the number of meth heads I drive by and I absolutely don't want to give my money to 
Yeah, it kind of is a, a bit of a counterbalance to that thought. Right. You could probably be a little selective in which yeah, pour. Just a little bit. Probably. So chapter 15. Again, nothing is static. Everything is falling apart. I know this because Tyler knows this. So so actually, so this, this, so this chapter is maybe when, and I, I didn't read ahead, but uh, some stuff is starting to shift. Some stuff is starting to fall apart. Uh, this is a chapter where Tyler and Jack uh, quit their jobs with great fanfare and blood and drama. And yet still managed to blackmail their bosses into still paying them, which you got to admit, it's kind of brilliant. <laughs> it's kind of brilliant in a dark sort of way. And do I have the nerve to pull that off? Well, I don't have a boss no. anymore. So no, I, I definitely can't do don't that. have the nerve to pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like my teeth too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like my teeth too much to be a prize fighter. When I watched this in the movie, there was so so, uh, and I love the way the movie portrayed this. So in uh, when Jack or when the Edward Norton character uh, liberates himself from his boss, I mean he you know he he beats himself up in his in his boss's office and times it so that security comes in and think his boss did it, and and that that's that that's cool and clever. The, the way that Tyler does his, I mean, it's a little bit different in the, bo- in the movie, in the book. In the movie, it's where the Fight Club's in the basement. The owner of the basement comes in, tries to kick them out. Uh, and Tyler lets himself get get beat up and just, like, intimidates the guy through that until where the guy just, uh, like, lets them have it and everything. Which, again, was, was, again, brutal and graphic and gory, but kind of an interesting uh, use of destruction is resurrection in a sense or it was in a really twisted sort of way mirroring a little bit of what happens uh, again of what this this christian motif of uh or looking at christ whose victories through death and like through death he tramples on death and everything which orthodox people forgive me for associating the two at all and maybe <laughs> you can call me out as being blasphemous and i'll and i'll recant it completely absolutely but but there's a sense though of like tyler is going up against this adversary that he can't win by strength or by might and so he wins by death in a sense or by letting himself be defeated and he lets himself get defeated so bloodily thoroughly that he ends up winning because the guy's just like i can't kill this guy and he's spitting blood in my face <laughs> and so so, so this idea of like, like there's freedom and self-destruction, there's freedom in having nothing. There's a lot of truth to that. And then again, there's even some like some bits of that that are like consistent with like, like Orthodox Christian teaching. Again, applied vastly differently. But, right, uh, right. But there, there, there's, there's a kernel of something there, a kernel. Well, I mean, I think it's such a, an applicable and true good kernel of truth that i mean you see this motif in so many forms of media where like the most dangerous person is the one that has nothing to lose because they'll do anything because they can't lose anything but yeah i've actually uh, uh taught this before in my martial arts teaching um there's a uh, in feudal japan the greatest of all most famous of all samurai miyamoto musashi uh, in that age, if you fought a duel, it was to the death, basically, or until physical maiming. And in his lifetime, he fought 60 duels and died of old age. <laughs> so obviously very successful, wow. undefeated. And he had this whole, he had his own disciples of swordsmanship. But a concept that he taught 
which I've passed on to some of my students at a slightly different context, was if you are going to go into a fight, if you're going to go into a duel, fight as though you're already dead. Because what does a dead man have to fear? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I mean, it's the same mm-hmm. thing here. When you don't have anything left to lose, you can be extraordinarily dangerous and you can accomplish great things because all you can do is go up. You know, I mean, which kind of lines up with uh, the earlier theme of, you know, hitting bottom. You know, once you've actually hit the bottom, then you can actually start to transform because Mm -hmm. the only way left to go is up. So it's. Mm -hmm. it's, Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting that way. That's really beautiful. What what was his name again? Uh, Miyamoto Musashi. His main uh, his main work that you can find uh, pretty readily available is the Book of Five Rings. Um, and it's, it's basically his little uh, guidebook to all of his disciples in swordsmanship. Um, there's some some practical strategy. There's some philosophy, and this really annoying thing because in that age, you know, not a lot of stuff was written down. So there are countless times start the book where it'll say like one line, and then just study this diligently with no extra context because the thought was, Oh, I'm going to see you every day and we're going to talk about this. So I don't have to write it down. Uh, so for those of at this day of age, that's super great. annoying. Like, come on, man, just expound a little more what you meant. Yeah. I love that. Uh, live as if you're already dead on a, on an internal level. So, so there's, there's this like clinical concept of being like unblended from all of the parts and being grounded in the self energies that are considered to be like, like invincible indestructible and like supremely expansive, able to like accommodate all of the feelings, all of the fears, all of the passions, and there's healing energies that come from it. And, and to, to complement that, I think is my, my favorite con- definition of what humility is, you know, was uh, from, um, I think it was uh, father Michael Gillis, who's again, one of the Orthodox teachers, but uh, he say humility is complete detachment from any form of self-will, and and when like in Orthodox teaching anyway too, we 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 say that uh, humility is the safest place to be because like when faced with like demonic attack of any sort, like uh, there's nothing stronger than humility, and like there's basically like nothing can hurt you if you're if you're in that state of humility, complete detachment from any form of self-will. So this idea of like, you know, live as if you're or fight as if you're already dead, you know, die to self in that way. There's a sense of like, yeah, if I can just like let go of everything, like I'm really free, I'm really strong and probably also able to be like really kind. Also, that does, that does seem to be kind of kind of a growing theme in the proper context and proper application like we've been talking about. Right. Because I, I would say of all right. the, the various themes that we've talked about in this book, that's probably the one that's the most universally applicable without having to really be too careful with the way it's applied in this book. But they definitely don't apply it very well in this book. <laughs> yeah, no, there's not. Yeah, because there's not really like, yeah, there. this book, they're, they're, there's no hope. There's nothing, nothing bigger. It's just... We're chasing this kind of vague sense of like, we, we want, we want to be free from stuff. We want to, you know, throw off the shackles, break the chains, uh, you know, tear some stuff down because we're angry at it, but there's not really a healing conversation going on. Yeah. It's like, okay, but I still so, think it's a good book. Oh yeah. It's a great book. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, okay, so you're going to break free. Then what? You know, it's like, it, it's only the first part of a plan. So, okay, sure. You want to be that 
extreme and that brutal. It's like you can only find redemption through self-destruction. Fine. If that's what you want to do, go for it. Then what? You know, there's, there's got to be a follow-up, you know. It, At one point, he's talking about, like, you know, I am I am Joe's smirking revenge as he's plotting how to, like, you know, get back his, at his boss. And I was like, okay, cool, so revenge. But to what end? And what's the point? Like, are you going to do anything with that afterwards? Or do you just want to, like, hit somebody? I kind of want because, oh, which, um, of course, made me think of, like, The Wrath of Khan because I love making Star Trek references, and that was a really great revenge story. At least, like, the, the original one was. But And I'm trying to think, was there, like... A point to that or was it just like no there wasn't i, I mean I, Karak and i need something to live for it. yeah there the the whole thrust behind behind khan's search for revenge on kirk was um in the original series um the episode space seed uh khan tries to take over the enterprise with his uh superhumans they fail kirk maroons them on a planet which then dovetails into star trek 2 wrath of khan and the whole thing is that in the original episode, Khan falls in love with one of the crewmates. She goes with them when they get marooned, and then she ends up dying on the planet. And that's basically the whole thrust of Khan's revenge against Kirk in the movie is, you marooned us, my wife died, so I'm angry, I'm going to get back at you. That's it. It is as arguably one of, if not the best, of the Star Trek movies there's still like no point to what he's trying to do. It's just blind rage. And at the, towards the end of the movie, his crew even calls him out on it. Be like, you're just letting us die. We can't win. Why are you doing this? And he just has this captain Ahab moment of, I am going to get him. I think he actually quotes Moby Dick with the whole, when he's uh, triggering. The I Genesis think they do. That, yeah. You know, it's like, it's just blind rage with no point other than just mindless vengeance yeah. i mean it's still a great movie yeah but when you analyze it it's like wow you and i mean ricardo montalban he's yeah i mean love better to cumberbatch but, ricardo he was no con. Yeah. <laughs> but i guess blind rage can feel stronger safer more in control than grief and and loss um because and in isolation because those things can be terrifying so from a from a from a psychological perspective, I can, I can kind of see. Oh, okay. <laughs> there, 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 there was a tender, hurting part deep down inside Khan, but it was like very, very tiny. Very, so. very tiny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, we have thrashed through five more chapters, and perhaps inserted more of ourselves into the story than was meant to contain but i think we got some good themes out of it so come back and do it again uh, great. so the uh, listener uh has not been offended out of following us all together by now um Just give us please time. do read chapter 16 through 20 right <laughs> we'll we'll get we'll offend you next time yeah <laughs> yes so we'll do 16 through 20 next time. <laughs> See okay. what Michigas they get into, and it'll be good. Thank you, and good night. Thank you. Word and Journey is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at MosesBernabe.com. 
Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Burnaby. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.